1: Welcome everybody to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you are listening to a podcast that offers hope and healing for folks who have been through what we like to call crucible experiences, those painful things that can happen to you. Be they failures, setbacks, tragedies, those things that change the trajectory of your life, that cause pain in your life and lead you to have a different life, a different perspective after those things happen. And our goal in talking about these things is not to wallow in them, not to camp on them, but is truly to look at them as ways we can learn about ourselves, learn about the path that we're on and chart a course to a life of significance. And here with me, as always, is the host of the program and the founder of Crucible Leadership, Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, we've got a very interesting episode today. Absolutely, Gary. Looking forward to it. And our guest today is Robert Krantz. And we're going to get talking to Robert in a minute. But before that, let me tell you a little bit about Robert Krantz. Robert Krantz is a Greek-American. His name was shortened from... Carunzos by his grandparents. Robert graduated from USC's film school and has acted in some of the most successful movies, like Back to the Future and The Woman in Red, TV movies, The Billionaire's Boys Club and Onassis, and sitcoms like Who's the Boss and Silver Spoons. He has also sold his original screenplays to Sony, Fox, and Columbia Pictures. Additionally, Krantz produced, wrote, and starred in the award-winning Do You Want to Dance and Christmas with the... Karunzos. He has written several best-selling books, Fallen in Love with Sophia, Guide to the Divine Liturgy, and Guide to Holy Week. Krantz is also the owner of Elinos Multimedia, the largest production and distribution company of Greek media in the United States. Most recently, he wrote, produced, directed, and starred, the shorthand version of that, His he Alan Aldud, Faith, <laughs> Hope, and Love, a film for which he received nominations for Best Screenplay, Best Picture, Best Actor, and one for Best Director from the International Christian Film Festival. His next film is going to be the movie adaptation of his book, Falling in Love with Sophia. Krantz lives in Southern California with his wife, Tricia. They have triplet sons, Chris, George, and Nick. Chris and George attend the University of Chicago, and Nick attends... Washington University in St. Louis. And Robert, let me begin by saying that Warwick and I both had the opportunity just over the weekend before we recorded this to watch Faith, Hope, and Love. I actually had seen it before. I, believe it or not, did publicity work for it, even though we didn't know each other. I did publicity work for it when it came out earlier in 2019, but we watched it again. And Warwick, you in particular and your family loved it.
0: We did, yeah. It was just an amazing movie and we watched it over the weekend with my wife and two of my three kids who were in their 20s, daughter and a son. And it's unusual to get a movie that everybody likes because, you know, normally guys like action movies and maybe my daughter might want less of an action movie, a bit more sentimental, but they all loved it. And what I liked is it was just heartwarming. It was funny. There was amazing dancing. I mean, obviously, you know, Petter, as you pronounce the name, you would expect from dancing on the style that should be good. But you were pretty good, too. So that was impressive, Robin. I really and and what I got, what I love uh, is um, you, it's it. nice when the co-star as I like to say doesn't have an accent you know she's from Australia so she talks talks like me I didn't need any <laughs> s- simultaneous translation I got because I got it so she was amazing so yeah I just loved uh, it and um, we'll talk more about that movie in a bit but yeah where we'd like to start is just a bit about your story and in particular I know you've had a couple different crucible experiences and yeah, just tell us a bit about your story and some of the challenges.
2: You know, it's funny. I was telling Gary that I've had so many of them and I just kind of accepted that that's just life, you know, and I was telling my wife recently, I was listing off many of them and I was saying to her, you know, God has been there every step of the way. Every time I've gotten knocked down, he's been there and picked me back up. And she said, you know, that's a interesting way you look at it because other people would look at it like God knocked them down. And I never felt that. And I'm going to mention one smaller one, but it had a profound impact on me before I get to the larger one. The smaller one was I was actually 12 years old and I was in the summer. I think my parents, in retrospect, both my parents have passed away, so I can't ask them, but I think they were going through some marital problems and they went to Greece and I think they were trying to, get away from the kids, so to speak, because there was three of us, and I'm sure we were a handful. And my dad was busy with work. So when my mom went to Greece first, he was going to join her, but he was so busy with work that he had my brother and I go and stay at my grandparents' house. They were Greek immigrants. And just to kind of give you a perspective, there was no washing machine. There was no air conditioning. It was the dead of summer. And I remember... You know, at the time, I don't think I understood it, but it just kind of felt like we were abandoned for like two or three months. My grandparents didn't speak that much English. And I remember sitting around doing nothing for two months. And when school began, the basketball tryouts began. And my brother, who was a year or so older than me, was the star of the team, I think, in ninth grade. I was going into eighth grade. And I remember trying out for the team. I can remember the shoes I wore. I can remember the gym bag I had, Everything because on the last day I was Mm. the last guy to get cut. Mm. I remember walking across that floor and, you know, you think something like that, well, you get over whatever, but it was such a crushing moment. And that night I went out with my two friends who were two of the best players on the team and made the team. And we went to a Milwaukee Bucks basketball game. I grew up in Wisconsin. And the next morning they were having anyone who wanted to volunteer to be a manager, in other words, the guy that got the team water, the guy that got the team towels, all that stuff, could volunteer. And I showed up, and I remember when I, the coach opened the door, he said, I had a feeling you were going to be here. And my mom, years and years and years later, there was one picture of me as a manager, and I was spinning a basketball on my finger in the locker room, and she would always tell me, that's my favorite picture of you. And I never really understood it. I thought, really? Why, why that one? Because it was a defining moment for me. From that moment on, it was humbling being around your best friends and getting water and towels and all that sort of stuff. But from that moment on, I began to work as hard as I could to become as good a basketball player as I could. And I realized two things out of this experience. Number one, when I had children, I would never let them out of my eyesight. Now, obviously, they're going to go off and do their thing. But I can tell you almost to this day, our children are 21 and they're in college. But I cannot remember my wife and I taking a vacation without them in 21 years. You know, my parents did a lot of things right. But that was one thing that was just, and unfortunately, there were some other repercussions that with other members of my family that things didn't go good. And it taught me, you have to have those children and I've always said to my children, even when they went to the University of Chicago in St. Louis, I was a running joke in our family. I said, if there's a problem, I'll be there in 15 minutes. And I've held true to that. Whenever there's a problem, there was a crisis yesterday with one of my kids, and I was on that phone immediately with him. So that was one part. And then the second part I learned is you have to work your tail off to be successful at something. And I think I've had that chip on my shoulder ever since that day. I ended up The next year, making the team. The year after that, becoming a starter. And then by my senior year, I ended up becoming the captain of our team that went to the state tournament. Never that good (laughs) a player. (laughs) Although I would love to tell you I was okay. But where I got exceeded my talent. And I think that that moment, in fact, if you see our movie, Christmas with the Karunzus, you'll hear me talk about it in that movie, in a certain scene. That defined me because from that moment in my life, I have had to work my tail off for everything. And as I got into the film, I didn't have a sibling or a parent or anybody in this business. And for years, it never made sense to me. And I'll segue into the second one here because you'll see Actually, how it together. Just all before fight you get together.
0: into the second one, I mean, this is such a great story. It may not be as, in some sense, as obviously searing as some of the ones that are coming up, you know, prepped a little bit. But what's interesting is this is a microcosm of the opportunity that a crucible experience can be. Here you are, you know, in eighth grade, you get cut the last one. It may not seem that big today, but at the time, in eighth grade, you're a kid, that's huge. And all your buddies are in the team. And it would have been easy for you to say, hey, this is unfair. I've been abandoned by my parents for two months. I mean, what is the deal here? It'd be easy for you to be angry, but you obviously weren't happy. But you said, okay. You humbled yourself to be a manager, you know, you worked your tail off and got on the team and became captain. I mean, that's sort of a microcosm of not letting a crucible experience define you and saying, "Okay, I didn't like this, but I'm going to bounce back from. It's a microcosm of I don't say the perfect way to approach a crucible experience, but feels kind of, you know, it's a little vignette, but it's a powerful story. So just want the listeners to see in that small example about the power of not letting a setback define you and you didn't let it define you. So that's truly impressive. So anyway.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. And what happened was, as I was saying when I got into the film business, it made absolutely no sense to me. I mean, I, my parents, my dad, you know, was a business person. My mom was a stay at home mom. Being from Wisconsin and coming into the film business There was no alert. It's not like if you live in Los Angeles where there's an immediacy to it. And so I had graduated high school, and I I remember I was at a church um, summer camp. There was a lady there, Faye Colster, and I was at the camp, and we were walking, just the two of us. And I said, Faye, I think that God's calling me to go into this field, into the film, and— Faye was one of those people that you just knew was a great Christian. She was just, like, wonderful. And I thought for sure she'd say, oh, my God, let's talk about this. You know, and she kind of just turned and started laughing, and she turned around, she could see I was serious. And she said, well, then let's pray about it. And she said, God, if – first of all, when she said that, I thought, oh, my God, if my buddy Teddy walks around the corner, I'm going (laughs) to die. You know, what were you and Faye doing walking, you know – but she prayed and said, God, if this is what you want for Robert's life, clear a path for him. And that was it. That was the prayer. And the irony was, or the punchline of that story was, decades later, I saw Faye when we were screening Faith, Hope, and Love. And she was at a screening. And I said, Faye, do you remember that? And she said, I remember mm-hmm. like it was yesterday. That it's, was a pivotal moment.
1: Those two stories are a great organizing construct for where the conversation is going to go next, I think. Your story about being in eighth grade and not making the team and the separation from your parents and feeling alone. And then that led to your resolve to not leave your kids alone, to always be there for them. As you tell your next Crucible stories, that's going to show up. And this other one about God called you to the film industry. And when you hit some rocky roads there, that was tested. And what I love about those two stories right there is Warwick and I have talked to a number of people about their crucible experiences, but yours, Robert, are kind of like crucibles squared. As you tell your stories, the listener will hear that pretty much the same time you had a professional crucible and a personal crucible sort of crash into each other. So I'll turn it over to you now to tell those stories, but it really is a fresh perspective we haven't had on the show yet of a crucible squared.
2: Yeah. So what happened was I moved out to California and I went to Arizona state for two years. And then I got work as a PA on a movie called night kill with Robert Mitchum. And And a PA uh, just for the record as
1: a production assistant.
2: Yeah. And I'll tell you that taught me, I will always, when I'm on a set now, the PAs, I will always treat them with the utmost respect because that's how I started out working for free. And so anyway, at the end, I thought, well, where do I go from here? And I went to USC's film school. How I got in there was a miracle in itself. And I was the luckiest guy in the world. But I got in there, and I remember on the first day of filming, they said, okay, anybody have any questions? And all these kids were doing tracking shots and dolly shots and all this stuff. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to be rough, but I got to bite the bullet. And I said, I don't <laughs> know how to focus the camera. And the entire room just died. And I'll never forget that teacher. He addressed me like he was the mm-hmm. most poignant question anyone had ever asked. Mel Sloan. I can still remember him. God bless him. And I was off and running. I ended up getting the highest grade in the class because they graded you on. <laughs> <your> improvement. <laughs> I, was so, I was so far down. It was like, okay. But. I was obsessed with it, and I just worked and worked and worked at it. But it came a point where I was studying acting at night. I was studying uh, writing and producing during the day. But there came a point when I had to jump off and say, is this what I'm supposed to do? So I went to a church, St. Sophia's in downtown Los Angeles, and I was alone. And this will tie into the crucible moment at the end. I said, God, I don't know why— This doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why, but I think this is what you're calling me to do with my life. And I'm worried it's my ego, and I don't want that to be the case. And if it's the case, stop me at any point. From the moment I get out of here, do whatever you need to do to stop me. But I think this is what you're calling me to do. I remember sometime around then telling my mother, Mom, I think I'm supposed to make these, at the time, this was in the 80s, these faith-based films. And she told me years later, I remember she said, I thought to myself, where are you going with that? (laughs) And I don't blame her for thinking that. But I just felt that's what was happening. So I then started, it was about 10 to 12 years of Back to the Future, Who's the Boss, all those sort of things. This was not an easy ride. This was a, if you're on a plane and there's turbulence the whole route, it was turbulence the whole way. It was hard, hard work. And I was constantly wondering, am I supposed to do this? Is this what it's supposed to be, et cetera? And it led up to a moment where I made a movie. I had seen Spike Lee, She's Gotta Have It, and with The Brothers McMullen. And I thought, I think this is what I'm supposed to do is to write, produce, and uh, act in a film. And so I wrote a film. There was a priest named Father Chris Kerhulis, who had a significant impact in my life. And I was going through a really tough time in my mid to late 20s. And I told him one day, I said, I'm going to make a movie about our friendship. And so I ended up making this film called Do You Want to Dance, which is basically a guy, myself, a dance instructor, gets in trouble with the law and ends up having to teach a bunch of senior citizens how to dance so they can stay in shape as his community service instead of going to jail. And so we put everything, and I mean everything under the sun that we had to the point that we had to move in with my mother, my wife and I, we'd gotten married and we had it all riding on this. And we flew to Chicago for a test screening for a thousand people. And it was a huge auditorium. And I had tested the film in groups of 20, 30 people, but this was going to tell me because the next night we were screening it for the studios, all the studios and Chris Columbus from home alone, was a fan of the screenplay, had seen the movie, and said, look, I'm all in. I love this movie. You did a great job. And I'm going to come and introduce the film to the studios when you come on Saturday night. Friday night, we were screening it in Chicago. So we screened it in Chicago, 1,000 people plus. They had to call the fireworm because it was so oversold. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a movie that I'd written. Get a Mm -hmm. reaction. (laughs) And I remember at one of the most pivotal parts – I started hearing some people sniffing and coughing or something, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, you're ruining it. All of you are sniffing, never realizing people were crying. That <laughs> was on screen was really making people cry. I never thought I'd have that effect on people, whatever I wrote or did. When I got up on stage afterwards, there was about a five to ten minute standing ovation, and I just was stunned. I didn't anticipate that at all. I remember I was going on stage. I could see it out of the corner of my eye. And I remember thinking, holy man, we knew we had a hit film. There was no doubt. You can't get people to react that way. And it was just afterwards, it was just a mob scene. It was great. So we go to Westwood the next day. We fly with the film. I think we had one copy of the film. That's all we could afford. And I had Dolby come in. I left nothing to chance. I had Dolby come in and check every speaker in the theater in Westwood, went up to the booth ahead of time, and I said to the guy, the projectionist, you know, hey, it's going to be a lot of people and make sure you have the sound. I said, Mr. Kranz, you can come up here as many times as you want. It's all good. And you could tell I was a nervous Nelly, and he was totally calm. And about, we sat down, Chris Columbus introduced the film, the film starts, and about 10 minutes into the film, one of the characters was speaking. I don't know if it was me or one of the other characters. And it started to warble. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, I'd heard the film so many times. I thought, what is that? I thought I was having a stroke at first. And then my wife squeezed my hand. And I thought, well, we're probably both not having strokes at the same time. So there's a problem here. And I learned a lesson. If it's your movie, never sit in the middle of a theater. Because I knew something horrible was happening. And everyone around me started knowing something horrible was happening. And I got up. And I thought, this just can't be. This was right in the beginning of the film. So I ran up to the projections booth and every one of the people that was involved in the film was up there. And the projections who had been so calm was in absolute panic. And I said, you know, what's happening? And he said, the light bulb that projects through the film to create the sound was wearing out. And he said, I don't have another one. And He said, can you ask everybody to come back tomorrow? And I said, are you crazy? There's heads of studios down there. They're not, I'm lucky I got them today. And it was absolute chaos. And then somehow somebody found a bulb. But I remember we were about halfway through the film at that point. It's just painful even thinking about it now. I had rehearsed two or three years preparing for the dance portion of that film. And I remember looking down, and it was the dance solo that I did in that film. I had looked so forward to that moment, being in the audience. And here I was up in the projectionist booth. And we had a time when something paused in the film for him to put in the new light bulb. And so I missed all that. And I remember sitting down, and I think I went to cry or something. Nothing came out. I had nothing left to give. I put everything into that, my heart and soul. And so I went back downstairs and I thought maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought. And one of our investors came walking around the corner and I looked at him, I said, George, he goes, what the blanks up with this film? And I went, Oh boy, we're in trouble. So long story short, the studio started passing on it and they thought the film had been made poorly and it had nothing to do with how the film was made. It was just this stupid light bulb. And I think for two or three days, I don't remember sleeping much at all, and it just didn't make sense to me. Here We were trying to make a film that was ahead of that whole faith-based movement, and you're trying to do something good, you know, to promote God and so forth, and we just got nailed. I mean, nailed. This wasn't even, you know, and weeks were going by, and it was Good Friday, and I thought, oh, I was leaving to go to Good Friday services, And my wife and I had no money. (laughs) We had no money. And I remember going to the service, and I was about to leave, and the phone rang. And Mike Bremer called me. I thought, ah, this is it. This is the moment. This is the story. You're going to Good Friday. And the call comes in, and we want to buy your film. And he said, I think it was Columbia, Disney, and Paramount all passed. And that was it. And I remember going to church and being just livid. I thought, "Could you have timed that any worse, God? (laughs) Could you have timed it? Could you have let me go to church and come back?" And I don't know. I just thought, and I just was so just crushed sitting in church. And you know, that's when everyone around you starts looking at you, thinking like, "Uh, "Good dream, but best of luck." And so a couple of weeks went by and everyone started telling me, move on with your life. You did your dream, you made your film, move on with your life. And right around then, there was a company called Largo that called up Mike and said, we wanted, We couldn't make it that night. Can you send us a screener? And they sent the screener over. They watched it. I'll never forget what they said. They said, we're wringing our hands and we're going to let you know. And I went back to our house, my mom's house. I kneeled down. And I prayed, and I said, God, I can't go on anymore. I thought that you and I had gone over this and had an agreement. It was 10 years earlier when I was in that church that this is what I was supposed to do with my life. And I've put in all this time and energy, and I know I told you if this isn't meant to be, stop it. Maybe you're stopping it. And I said, if you are, if they come back and say no, I'm going to move on with my life and do something else. I hate the last part of this, but it's the truth. I said, but you're gonna have an angry son on your hands. You know, but that was the truth, that's how I felt. And I got up, everyone in my life was telling me, move on, except three people. My mom, my best friend Gary, and my sister were telling me, don't quit. And so I went, I think to the store or something and the phone rang, I picked up, it was Mike. And I said, what's up? He said, do we have a lawyer? I "I don't know why. Who's asking? (laughs) He goes, it's Largo. And I go, what does that mean? Do we have a lawyer? And he goes, Don't look up, don't look down. I think they're gonna buy the foreign rights to the film. And they did. And they took it to Cannes. They flew my wife and I to Cannes. And the way these stories go, you think, like, ah, there it is. There's the beautiful moment. I'm telling you, it was one bumpy ride after another. We got to Cannes, and I remember Peter walked in. Peter Elson was selling the foreign sales, and he said, do you like the sight of blood? i like, And he goes, because your film is <laughs> bleeding. We're not selling it that much. And they sold enough to do one thing, to license the rights of the music to the film, which meant we now could sell it. There was no advance. They gave us no money, but they sold the rights. They bought the rights to the, to the music. So I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what that means, but all right, we live for another day. My wife and I get on the plane and we're flying back. And I remember at one point I saw the low budget director, Gary, I can't remember his name, the guy that did all those low budget films with Ron Howard and so forth. And I remember my wife, I was trying to tell her and she was doing sit-ups and she kept saying, oh, I'm having stomach pains. I'm having stomach pains. And so, we got back home. The ride was rocky as could be. I almost lost my ticket getting on the plane. It was just one problem after another. I see my mom, and I'm like, hey, mom, you know, this is how it went. And my wife goes behind my mother, and she keeps going like this. And I go, yeah, yeah I'm glad. I hope you're feeling better. And she's like, that. And finally, I go, what is it? she goes, I took a pregnancy test. I'm pregnant. <laughs> so, so, So... It was three weeks later, I come home, there's an ambulance outside the house and I'm thinking, Oh my God, either way it's going to be bad news. Cause my mom was older. My wife I knew was pregnant. I see my wife in the ambulance. We go to the emergency room and we're looking at this monitor and I thought, okay, maybe we lost the child or something happened. It turned out she flipped an ovary, which was excruciatingly painful. And as we're looking at the monitor, I see these two sacks, and I'm staring at them, and I'm thinking, hmm, it's just the doctor, my wife and I, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to say what I'm thinking because it looks like two, and I'm thinking, I'm not ready for that. And so finally, after five minutes, I go, is that two, like two children? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely twins. And he scrolls over, he goes, but I'm trying to figure out what this is here. And sure enough, it was a third child. It was triplets. Now, when I go on to public speaking, I – I always pause this moment because I go, look, I know what you're thinking. Is this story got a good (laughs) ending because I had a film that nobody wanted. I had three kids on the way. I was in debt because of this film and I'm living with my mom. And it was all just caving in. But the next part became even harder at 12 weeks. We went to see the doctor, and my wife could tell right away. She said, something's wrong. And I said, no, no, they're just talking. That He came back in, and he said, Tricia, you're going into labor. And it was 12 weeks. And I can remember he performed what they call a cerclage, which stopped it. But we were in serious trouble. And this was before the right as the cusp of the Internet taking out. So you couldn't go on the Internet and get information. It was right on the cusp of that. And I remember the doctor, who was a very kind man, he sent me home with a pamphlet and he said, you're an excellent candidate for reduction. And I was so excited because I was not an excellent candidate for anything at that point in my life. And I remember thinking, I wonder what that means. Maybe you get a discount for something or I didn't know. And I went home and I started reading the pamphlet and reduction meant to abort one or two of the children. That's what they were telling us they thought we should do. So I went and talked to my wife, both of us were crying. She's petite, she's 5'3", maybe 105 pounds. We knew nothing about this. And I remember after I began to read what they do during their abortion, I thought, I just can't do that. I just, I can't do that. Maybe others can, but I'd rather live with the consequences of whatever happened when we had the children or whatever happened. And so my wife and I talked and talked about it. And at one point, every couple of weeks, we keep coming back to the emergency room because her body kept reacting as though it was going to go into labor. And they put her on total and absolute complete bed rest. And I read a book about this thing called Brewer's Diet. And that diet made her put on 60 pounds. And we told the doctor, we're going to try to have all three. And he said, you can't leave bed rest. It's just going to be so hard for Trisha to do this. And she had a belt on and this belt kept going off and into the emergency room we go. And finally he said, look, you two, I'm telling you, I think we're about 17, 18 weeks. He said, I'm not worried about your three children dying. You guys are worried about them dying. What I'm telling you is you're going to give birth to three invalids and you will get divorced and your marriage will be over and your lives will change forever. And I remember crying on the ride home. I was by myself and I remember saying, God, please just give me any sign. It was, you know, even talking about it now, it's difficult. It was the hardest moment of my life because I couldn't work my way out of it. I couldn't work extra hours. I just couldn't do anything other than pray and say, God, I need your help. So I've got this film that nobody wants. I've got a wife that's on bed rest. I'm about to lose or have three invalids. And at the end, we told the doctor, look, we're going to go. And whatever happens, happens. And we said, we're not going to board any of the children. And I think it was about 17, 18, 20 weeks. And the doctor, he had all these like, patients that would come in. There were multiples, but they were doing so great. They came walking. In. My wife, they had to put on her gurney and bring her in. And every week you thought, this is it. We can't go beyond 23. And said, boy, if you could just hang in, this is where the cells in the brain form. And the next week, well, this is where the hearing forms. And we were just stumbling along. And then finally, I think she got to about 29 weeks, and he turned to my wife, and he said, if you come back in one more time, I'm going to tell you, you have got to abort. And sure enough, on the day he told us, like this is the day, I think it was Labor Day, the buzzer went off one more time. In we came, and I remember I was in the hospital, and my wife came out of the hospital bathroom, and this doctor came in, he was 6'3", and she looked up at him, she said, she put her hand up, she goes, I don't care what you have to say, I'm not giving up on those kids. So if you're coming in here to tell me to abort, the answer is no, and you can leave. He started laughing. He started laughing. And he said, okay, we'll try and finish this. And about two weeks later, I think it was 30, 31 weeks, he said to my wife, I've been wrong every week. Why don't you just tell me when you're going to give birth and I'll show up? <laughs> and she told him December 20 of 1998 with her grandmother's birthday. And she said, that's the date. And that's the day those kids were born. It's 35 weeks, I believe. And it changed my life completely because when those kids were born, they were baptized. I remember at the end of the baptism, they were in my in-laws home. And I took each one of them. We were in the back room and I held each one up in my arms to God. And I said, they're yours now. And I said, I'm going to be the best father I can be. And I will never forget this moment. And I committed myself to those three boys, mind, body, spirit, everything I've had, I put into those boys because I'm convinced that they're gonna do some good in this world. God put them here with a purpose and I never wanted to meet my creator and have him say to me, boy, did you forget? You forgot how much you wanted those kids. So, and I tell you, they put me through the were moments <laughs> 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 where I'm like, oh, you guys make this tough, man. I love you, but you're killing me. <laughs> but that was the defining moment. And then to tie it in with the professional, so you, you guys will get a kick out of this. Right before the kids were born, Largo, the guys who were handling the foreign. The film, came back and said, great news. Columbia is going to buy the picture. They're taking, it's a package deal. They're taking two of our other films. So Mike called up his friend, Peter Nelson, who worked at Columbia. <laughs> and Peter said, Mike, it's going to be wonderful. you can tell all your friends the films at Columbia. You're not going to make a dime off of this. And I went, what are we doing that for? He goes, look, just move on. Let's listen. And so I'm like, no, I got a wife on over here. We got to get going here. And so... I opened up this paper called The Orthodox Observer, and it goes out to all the Greeks. And in it, there was a tape called Cooking with Yaya, Cooking with Grandma in the Kitchen. And and I looked at it, and I said, man, if they're selling that, I can sell my little movie. And so I call up Largo, and I'm like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to start my own company called Elena's Multimedia, and I'll never forget the response. Bob, if you were here, we would hang you out the window by your thumbs. This is the stupidest thing you've ever done. And everyone told me it's the stupidest thing. Everybody. Another friend who's very close to me said, okay, you sell it to your 10 Greek friends. (laughs) Then what? And so I remember there was a friend, Nick Largakis, who had an event in Los Angeles. I had lunch with him. And he said, Bob, bring some of your videos to this event. And I said, Nick, nobody knows me. Like, nobody knows me. He said, just bring it. So I said to my wife, do you think I should go? She was on rest at the time. She said, there's a box by the, the washer and dryer. Fill it up with videos and see what happens. I pack up 20 videos in this box, carry it in, open up the box, put the videos out on the thing, write down 1995 on the sign. Nick comes by. He's like, what we're <laughs> going to get changed? That's $20. Just put $20. So I said, all oh, right, yeah, right, $20. And a guy walks up the minute I open the box and he hands me a bill. <laughs> I said, sorry, I don't have change for 100 What are you saying? He goes, it's a 20. It had been <laughs> so long since I'd seen money, he had <laughs> changed the bill. <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a 20. I'm sorry, thank you. <laughs> so I went home to my wife. I walked in, she's on bed rest. And I walk up to the bed and I take two $20 bills and I put it on the bed and she goes, all right, 40 bucks we didn't have. And I put two more things. She goes, Oh my gosh, 80? And I took all 20 of the $20 bills and I threw it over the bed. And it just went, it was like a million bucks for us. And I put it on the counter that night. Neither one of us could sleep that night because I think we knew. I think we knew that the answer had come. And the answer was I ended up starting my own company, Elinas Multimedia. It was not until I think I mentioned this to you, Gary. Yep. Five years later, I was in my home, crossing through the living room, and I went, oh, okay, that's what this was all about. I think what it was was this. God knew if I sold that movie, I would have stayed up in Los Angeles. I would have probably gone on to the next project. I would have never been the father and perhaps even the husband, too, that I wanted to be. My wife and my children are everything to me. I would give up everything I have for those four people. As I always say, God knows you better than you know yourself. God knew what was in my heart. I wanted to be a, you'll see this in the movie Christmas with the Karunzes. You'll hear that there's a line that I say in there, which is, all I ever wanted to be was a great father. That's all I wanted to be. And a great husband. I wanted to be the best husband. And, I think what God knew is if you sell this film, number one, the money won't last as long as you think it will. You'll be jumping from job to job. And I want to tell you, I'm going to have to slow you down here. And it was only five years later after I started my company that I looked back and went, oh, we moved out of Los Angeles in Orange County. I was a present father and I ended up starting my own company, but I did not know at that time it would be, 15 or 16 years before I would ever be able to act or write or produce again because I was committed to my family. And then when that came about with Christmas with the says, just briefly here and then I'll be quiet. My sons were in their sophomore year in high school and I finished the movie in 12 days. And when I came home, my son George had left a note on the stairs, which said, are you done yet? And I went upstairs and I told my wife, I won't make another movie until they're in college. And then went into college and then I made Faith Hope. And so how
0: many years were there between that whole terrible experience with dance, with that first movie, Do You Want to Dance? And then Faith, Hope and Love. What was that gap between those two?
2: Almost wow. 20 years.
0: And for most of that time, you yeah. were focused on being a dad. And so Completely. that is just an incredible story. And I really appreciate you sharing. it. I mean, you've got these two searing experiences. You have this great movie that you felt like you knew this was a hit. I mean, the audiences loved it. They cried where they want to cry. I mean, obviously, you don't want them crying at the funny past. They were crying at, at the past they were meant to be crying at. So that's always a positive sign. Right. And if not for the light bulb, there's a pretty fair chance that somebody would have picked it up. And maybe the last okay. 20 years could have been very different. So obviously, even yeah. people of faith, I mean, we're human. Were you kind of, I, mean, I think you kind of said it a bit, were you like angry and like, this is just so unfair. This was a hit. This is not justice. This is not fair. You know, this is a hit. The audience says it's a hit.
2: Not only angry, crushed, because I wasn't making a horror film. I wasn't making a cops and rum. I was making a film that when you watch it glorify God and you're thinking, wow, I see all these other films coming out and, you know, you would think God would give me a little nudge, you know, but it, no, that's not the plan. I mean, I mean that, God that's sort me. of
0: kind of amazing because it's easy for us to think that we know what God's plan is, is not to get into this too much, but it's know from, from other podcasts and blogs growing up in a large 150 year old family media business that was started by a stronger businessman for Christ as ever existed, at least. In Australia, from my perspective, in the late 1830s, early 1840s, you know, here am I, I'm thinking, okay, I'm a believer, gosh, you know, must be God's plan to resurrect the company and the ideals of the founder, at least in terms of how people are treated and the ethics and what have you, and then do the takeover, 2.25 billion, the company goes on and it's like, a little bit like you, but you know, just a different vantage point. Well, Lord, it had to have been your will For me to be in control of this big company because it was founded by a person of faith. I mean, like, okay, I made dumb mistakes, which is, I've talked about a lot, but how can this happen? This makes no sense. I thought this was your plan for my life to be in this, you know, 150 year old family business. I guess not. So it's like, sometimes we have this thought that, well, surely, Lord, you need more, you know, faith based, life enhancing movies. Like, I mean, do you need less? I mean, maybe I'm right. missing something, but surely this mm-hmm. is something that helps the cause, right? And how in the world can you let it happen? I mean, did you kind of fall asleep? I mean, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's easy to- No, look, I, felt, uh,
2: I felt that way, you know, and it took me a long time, but what I realized as I've gone through, you know, you talk about crucible moments, I've had so many since then in between them, but each one, you know, my mother-in-law two and a half years ago had a brain aneurysm, survived. Still can't speak today, but thank God she's still alive. I lost my mom, my dad. there has been so many moments, but I've learned to, you know, when Gary and I were first talking about doing this, I remember I don't follow podcasts too much. And I remember he said, I don't know how they rate podcasts or how many viewers, whatever that is. It didn't matter to me, and I'll tell you why. If there's one person out there, I was asked a question during the interviews for this movie, and they said, what do you want this to be about this movie? And I thought about it for a long time on the air, and I finally said, hope. That's what I'm doing this for. That's what I'm doing, what we're doing right now. If there's a person out there that's down on their luck and struggling, that doesn't think their life's amounting to something, that's got a kid that's on drugs, that's upside down on their mortgage, that's struggling to get through college, that feels like they're too old and nobody's paying attention, or too young and nobody's paying attention. whatever that is, everything I'm trying to do with my work now is geared towards one thing, that people, when they see me, when they see my movies, that they're given hope. And that hope can come just in the form of what you're watching, or it can be even hope from. And I, and I feel God like
0: um, you've lived a life of hope, as we'll get into in a minute. I think the character in um, your recent movie, Faith, Hope and Love, the translation of the Greek, the character's name is hope, you know, so it was obviously very appropriate. But, you know, you could have after that professional debacle and everybody other than two or three, it helps when your mom and, and your wife, amongst others, are with you. And they said, you know, just, Robert, give it up. This is madness you know, you're insane. You know, sometimes you got to admit that you licked, you know, cry uncle and move on. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like the biblical plagues. You've had about five or six. Do you need 20? I mean, how many do you need? Locusts and frogs? I mean, how many signs do you need that give it up? But yet you just, in a conviction, I think we might think it's from, from the divine. Others might think it's some inner voice. Whatever you believe you had the courage to listen in a voice that said, Robert, don't give up. I mean, maybe you'll have to put it on haters for 15, 20 years, but Uh, the dream's uh, not gonna die. And so that took courage. I wanna get into a little bit into the second crucible, which is, I mean, that is just amazing when the doctor, he was Sarah Expert, and they said, you know, you can't have these three kids to term, there's no way they will be anything other than, uh, you know, brain damaged, invalid. It makes no sense. I imagine they probably said your wife's life could be in danger. I'm guessing that conversation would have happened. And yet, this is a mutual decision, obviously, you and your wife. But to have the courage and conviction to say, you know, we're not doing that. And that kind of epic moment when your wife stood up to that six foot three doctor and said, don't even think about (laughs) saying, you know, that we're uh, going to end this because it's not happening. I mean, the courage you both showed there was just incredible. I guess it's a stupid question, but where'd you get that kind of courage to basically ignore all professional medical advice?
2: You know, to tell you the truth, whenever I speak about this, I always say, when it came to that moment, please don't think for a second that my wife and I said, no, and we were scared to death scared to death. So I almost hesitate to say courage. We were scared to death. Since that moment, I've heard four or five cases almost once every year about triplets that were born deaf, and blind, triplets that were born and one or two died. Man, I don't even want to take any credit for that moment. I just don't. I don't feel comfortable with it because I just know I was shaking in my boots when we made that decision. And I'll tell you if there was one moment conversation that impacted it, it was this, the priest that I made, do you wanna dance with? I was talking to him years before this and I asked him a question, we were talking about abortion. This was years before any of this happened. And I said, well, you know, he was against abortion. I said, why? And he goes, his wife's name is Maria because Greek priests can get married. If you get married before you become a priest. And he said, we would have a kid. And I said, why? He said, and this was the answer, because our marriage could survive it if something went wrong. And I remember thinking, my wife and I, I just felt that we could survive it. And whatever God gave us, we would survive it. It would be hard. It'd be tough. But I felt like we could survive it. And by the way, oh, you actually, work this is one other piece that I'm glad you brought this up because it's significant. That moment when I went into the church and I prayed, I said, God, I don't know why you put this on my heart, but I think this is what you want me to do with my life. Before I left the church that day, I said, the next time I'm going to come back like this is when I find the woman that I want to marry. And when I find whoever that is, I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask her in this church in front of you. I didn't think that much of that to tell you the truth. I just know I meant it. And so... And when i met my wife 10 years later and we dated for i think a year or so and i knew that she was the one and i brought her back to that church and i proposed to her and i told her the story and the funny thing is i got to the part of the story i said and i told god that i'd bring my wife back and she was staring at me and i thought oh i never wrote the (laughs) end of it in my mind (laughs) I started the story from the beginning and repeated it and she went like, and I went, the ring, the ring, yeah, the ring. And I also didn't didn't realize how small those booze were, my butt kind of got (laughs) stuck when I had to get down on one knee. But years went by after all of these difficult times, the Great Recession, and children's. one of my kids had scoliosis, the mother-in-law who had aneurysm, the death of my grandma, my father, my mother. So much had happened. And for the longest time, We've been married, I think, almost 26 years now. And I, for the longest time, I thought, boy, I really was a good judge of character. I think up until about 25 years, I thought, man, I was a boy, I really was. And then I started to dawn on me, there's no way in two years of dating or whatever it was, now it wasn't my judge of character. Yeah, I'm sure that played something into it. But what I realized was the significant impact of going in front of God and saying, When I find her, I'm bringing her back and ask her to marry me in front of God. I think that meant so much to God. Well, the reason why I kind of feel that way is because when my children turned 21, they're the age I was when I went in there. And I thought, man, if one of my kids did that, first of all, it would just shock me, you know. And then I would think, wow, that's really something at 21 to go in and say that in front of God. So I think that was also all of these things yeah i mean it's the sense of
0: honoring the lord with your marriage and just you know saying you know god you show me the sign i want to follow you i mean you know you honor him he'll honor you i do want to talk about faith hope and love but i want just for the listeners who are listening thinking well how did this guy survive I mean, <laughs> how, how is he not in some <laughs> asylum or something? I mean, how is he even vaguely sane after the thing with the movie and then the triplets? I mean, they did survive, but, you know, could have taken 50 years off your life or aged you or something. How did you bounce back from those experiences? I mean, you know, you've got this great movie coming out, but it's not like I'm sure life is just all so easy and it's just been, you know, like living in Disney World every day. I mean, it's probably. Still challenging. So for the listener, how did you get beyond those two very challenging circumstances and not let it define your whole life and be bitter and angry and I don't know what?
2: And to add to your point there, even the release of this film along the way, everyone told me, don't put it in movie theaters. Mm -hmm. You're going to regret it. We opened it in 40 cities over a period of three months. People told me when we went to the premiere, do not have it. (laughs) There was one meeting I went to and this one manager told me, do not have it in that theater, you will regret it. It's 850 seats. And he said, you're gonna get a couple hundred people in there and you're gonna be embarrassed and you're gonna embarrass everybody else. And I got in the car, I was driving back home and I could literally, I I could literally feel God laughing next to me saying, no, no, let me get this right. I walked on water, rose from the dead, healed the deaf, uh, the blind, the dumb, but you don't think I can (laughs) fill that theater, Bob. (laughs) Is that kind of what you said? So actually, when I parked the car, I went inside and booked the theater. It was sold out. We were oversold that night by 250 people. But how did I get through that period? One foot in front of the other. It was right in the middle of all this, 2008, the Great Recession hit. And it was just one foot in front of the other hard 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 work there were nights at work where I would have to stay overnight working and also 15 years later when I made the next film Christmas with the Karunas I didn't know if anybody even remembered me even now I still feel that way and so I wasn't sure whether there was going to be anybody out there caring what I did and what movie I made but without you know one of the comments I always hear with faith, hope, and love is thank you for making a faith-based film that did not pound me over the head with religion. And so my comments to you about when I talk about God and getting me through those hard times, it was tough. It was a struggle. It was There were times when I thought, God, you know, how am I going to get through all this? But as my friend Mike would say, God squeezes, but he doesn't strangles. And I found that to be true. And what God, I think, was doing during that time was fortifying me for the road up ahead, the fight up ahead, and the battles. An extraordinary
1: part of all the stories that you've told, Robert, you had a vision in the aftermath of those crucibles. You talked about it, about offering hope to people. And one of the things that we talk about, that Warwick talks about at Crucible Leadership is a key to getting beyond crucible moments is to have a vision that points you toward a life of significance. And to talk about faith, hope, and love, it's very interesting that in that film, your lead character, Jimmy Hope, played by you, has personal and professional crucible experiences. He is doing poorly at his job. He gets fired but knows his boss so well that he manages to delay the firing to have one last chance to work on a really, really tough account in this advertising agency. So there's the professional crucible. And on the personal front, his wife has passed away a few years earlier and he's left to raise his two daughters on his own. For you to say that movie's about hope and that's where your character's at how does that play out? Tell listeners a little bit about, without giving away too much so that they want to actually see the movie, how the movie deals in those subjects sort of mirrors your life, it seems, a little bit.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the great compliments that we've received on this film is that, you know, Gary, you know, you would think I'd have it all figured out by now, but I'm constantly refining it and thinking, what am I doing this for? Specifically, what am I doing this for? And what is it that I'm bringing that when I look in retrospect, oh, that's what you brought to this filmmaking business. And I think what it is, is this. The films that I'm headed towards, like a locomotive, is faith-based films have been stereotypical. They've been stiff. They've been poorly acted. They don't have much entertainment value. And you just go, ah, oh, you wonder why we as Christians keep getting pigeonholed. In the same way as when I speak, I talk about this. When Spike Lee came out with She's Gotta Have It, I remember sitting in that audience with 95% African-American audience, and they were screaming at the film. Why? Because up until that point, when you saw an African-American character, they were a pimp, they were a thug. All of a sudden, you had someone came along and said, we're more than that. And then you see it, and you go, holy man. They responded. The same thing, I think, is happening with Christians today. When you look at films, 95% of them that portray Christians, it's dull, it's flat, or they pick one of two subject matters. They went to heaven, they came back, or it's the Old Testament. But it's not the day-to-day life that you and I go through. And so with Jimmy Hope and what you were talking about, I wanted to show real-life problems. You know, or what you were saying, how did you get through it? You know what I have found? Because that's why I go on the road with the film and I go to these screenings and I meet the people. I have found that when I'm at those screenings, the mothers will come up after me and someone will whisper in my ear, my son committed suicide. This is the first time I laughed. I'll come up and someone say, I just lost my husband. What I have found, everybody's going through similar stuff that I went through. And when God allows you to go through what I went through and what Jimmy Hope went through, you become so much more empathetic towards the human condition. When I see people post up on social media or when they call me or email me, I'll tell you, it breaks my heart. And the only way I have to process it and get through it is by making these movies and taking these moments back out there and saying, I'm with you. I hear you. And there's, cool. there was a, yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Um,
0: that's right. one of the things we talk about on crystal leadership. That's, sounds a bit trite, but it's pain for a purpose. You know, we don't always know why. I mean, God obviously doesn't cause pain, but why does he allow things to happen? And you're right. It does give you empathy. I mean, my crucibles are very different than yours, but, you know, having lost a large family media business, and if you Google me, it's still not particularly favorable. I do have a Wikipedia entry. It's kind of young, hot-headed kid, you know, could have had it all, but blew it. It's It'll probably always be that way. And so it gives you a sense of empathy for people. But I mean, a couple of things that is remarkable about your story, many, but this sense of resilience. And there's one aspect I want to sort of mildly disagree with you in the sense of you very humbly say like, hey, you know, I wasn't courageous, but, you know, you look up courage, many definitions of courage is something like this, that even when you were fearful and you just didn't think you could make it, somehow you find the strength to take one more step, you know? And for people of faith, well, maybe the uh, ability to take one more step comes from above. But, you know, I mean, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being able to take a step even when you're quaking in your boots. That was kind of the definition of courage that you were going through. I mean, some listeners won't be people of faith, but, you know, whether you call it faith or not, whether it's with the decision whether to abort your triplets, one or all of them, or, you know, the decision about to put your movie on hold, career on hold for a while, or the decision to keep going long term, it's listening to that inner voice. You know, maybe you don't believe in God, or maybe it's more of an ethereal supreme being, or however your definition is. You listen to that inner voice, that still small voice that says, you know what, this is the right thing to do. Don't ignore that. You didn't ignore that voice at those critical moments. So for listeners of whatever faith, just the courage that you displayed and that listening to that inner voice, putting your family first, I don't know, you do that, you feel like God, the universe, in some fashion, maybe not the way we would like or expect, will honor that. So it's just, and now what you're doing with faith, hope, and love, it's just... You're right. I mean, the thing of the cliche of Christian movies is, yeah, poorly acted, poorly directed, poor plot, poor story, poor everything, and they just slap Jesus on it. Okay? So, I mean, when you have people of faith cringing, it's not a good sign. (laughs) No.
2: No, My sister, exactly, my sister's a very religious woman and she said I don't go to them anymore. But
0: the movie that you made, it made you laugh, cry, it was funny, it's compelling great acting, being from Australia, obviously love the fact that the lead actress is Australian. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So that was so fun. So, I mean, I applaud you for what you're doing and really just ignoring the naysayers, the people who say, you know, Robert, give it up, give it up. You'll never make it, okay? Even now they're probably saying, okay, you know, maybe this will work, but, you know, you're not going to be Christopher Columbus or Robert Zemeckis or whoever these people are. And you probably think, okay, so what? okay. I don't need to make movies that gross as much as Star Wars. That'd be nice, but I'm sure you'd be quite happy even if it didn't gross, you know, that much, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think once God, you know, Gary asked me the same thing, how did I get through all this? You know, the the short answer without being heavy-handed, there's no question about it. God had such compassion on me and such kindness towards me. There's many a day I came and I have an icon of Christ up on my wall, And boy, there's been many a day that I came in and cried in front of that icon Mm. and said, thank you. I mean, really, genuinely, if I said one thing over and over again in that moment, it was, Mm. I owe you my life. And that's what I'm going to do is, you know, the parable of the talents. I'm trying to use whatever God gave me, whether it's dancing or writing or editing, producing, whatever it is, because I'm hopeful when that moment comes when I am with him that, he does say, "Well done, my son," and not, "Right, why weren't you singing? I gave you talent to sing. What was wrong with and, you?" And there is a
1: line. There is a line in Faith, Hope, and Love, Robert. I was watching the movie on a Saturday night with my wife, and I actually got up from the couch and wrote this line down because I wanted to ask you about it. It's the scene where Jimmy and Hope are on the rooftop, and he's explaining. His faith to her because she has no faith in the beginning and she's intrigued by his faith and the hope that comes from his faith and it's attractive to her and he's explaining to her about the death of his wife and how that didn't kill his faith that actually helped augmented strengthened his faith and your character says this in explaining to faith why he was able to still have faith and Jimmy says That he prayed to God that if he could get me through that, his wife's death, I'd never be casual about my faith again. That struck me when I heard that, Robert, that that wasn't a line that Robert Krantz made up as a screenwriter. That was a line that Robert Krantz lived as a man.
2: Not only myself, but when I'm sitting in screenings, I can feel that moment resonates with audience because it's doing one thing. It's allowing the audience to move into Jimmy's shoes and saying, where am I on that spectrum? And I can feel it that when he said I was a casual Christian at the start of that speech, I can feel that moment has done so much more, Gary, than the typical thing that you've seen in movies, which is the movies start out with somebody who's very angry at God, and then they convert. I didn't want to go down that road. I wanted to show what I perceive to be what I've gone through and what I perceive for friends and acquaintances go through, which is you're in that boxing ring with life and life hits you in the chops and you wobble and you're trying to get your bearings and you're trying not to go down for the count. And I've always found that God is that hand that comes in and steadies you and gets you back up there. And you're right. That is what I've tried to do with my life is to not be casual about it and do things like this. And also, I don't know if either of you've had a chance to go up on social media or Rotten Tomatoes, we had a 97% audience approval. That movie, there is something about it that is just resonating with people. And I think it's the things that we're talking about.
1: And this would be a great time, Robert, for you to tell listeners how they can get their own copy. It is now on DVD, came out in the spring of 2019, but now it's on DVD. How can they get their own copy and see for themselves what Faith, Hope & Love is all about?
2: If you go to, there's one place, do not go to Amazon. (laughs) Apparently there's a German company up there that's selling it and they're giving out German copies for German. Maybe the people have the German rights to it and people are frustrated. So don't do that. If you go to our website, and I'll spell it for you, it's called elinasmultimedia.com. It's E-L-L-I-N-A-S, multimedia, M-U-L-T-I-M-E-D-I-A.com. Uh, you can get the DVD, and they ship out the same day, and they get there in three to five days. So it's elenasmultimedia.com As my friend Elaine says, could you have made it a longer <laughs> .com title?
1: Well, it <laughs> could have been your birthname.com. That would have been extraordinary <laughs> yeah, right. long too. As we start moving toward doing what I like to call land the plane, one of the things that Warwick and I wanted to chat with you about is Crucible Leadership is all about at the – not the end, but – The goal of coming out of a crucible is to lead a life of significance. And it occurs to me that Hollywood, and I've lived there. I worked in publicity for the film industry for three to four years. Hollywood is not an easy place to pursue significance either professionally or personally. Professionally, in the movie business, opening weekend is everything. If you don't do great there, people forget about you. Personally, Look at the headlines and the stories of marriages that fall apart. It's not an easy place to pursue significance. And yet, you've been able to do it. And I think one of the things, I want to ask you how you did that, but I want listeners to understand that it's not where you're placed, but what's placed in you that paves the road to a life of significance. And I think you've talked about that, Robert, but how have you found a way to live a life of significance, if not in Hollywood proper in Orange County and in the motion picture industry?
2: You know, first of all, I have nothing to do with Hollywood. I don't go up there. I'm not part of that whole, you know, I just don't. I don't like it. You know, nothing against it, but I just, it's not me. There's an element of heaven that's going to be, I think I'm going to do Falling in Love with Sophia, the book I wrote next. There's also an original screenplay that I'm writing that has an element of heaven in it. So I've been reading a lot about it one of the things that I've read is kind of how I feel, how I want my life to be. I'm not saying that I've nailed this yet, but it's definitely when you talk about a life of significance. I read that when you get to heaven, God plays a movie and that movie is of you in all the moments in your life when you gave out love. And I've thought about that. And I think that what I constantly am trying to do, I've missed the mark and there's certain people in my life be gone. Oh, okay. What about, do you remember? Yeah, you don't forgot about that love moment. But I think what I'm trying to do every step of the way with people that I come in contact, whether it's uh, somebody that delivers something to our office, whether it's one of my children, whether it's an acquaintance, I'm doing my best to, if you drop a pebble, a rock, or a boulder in water, the pebble has very little ripples. The rock has more. The boulder has the most ripples. I'm trying to be that boulder when I drop in. So it has all those ringlets that come out. And I'm trying to touch as many people's lives with goodness that I can. Not easy. Get pissed off like everybody else. But I'm trying to leave it life of significance that way. You know, when Paul was going out in the gospel, (laughs) he was just going from town to town, person to person. It wasn't like Paul. Can you imagine? Paul must have said, to God, invent the internet already. <laughs> Let's come on. We speed this up. Let's get this going. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna, what am I almost dying this shipwreck for? Let's I mean. So I keep my mouth shut and I just try and go from person to person, moments like this, and I try and just let God do what he does. If it ends up being there's a hundred people I touch in my life, great. If it's a million, whatever he decides, I'm convinced my job is in this life of significance. Is to go out and put out these films, touch as many people as I can, and also my personal life. At the end of it, when they write my epitaph, I want them to say he was a phenomenal husband, he was a phenomenal father, and hopefully with these movies, he was a phenomenal filmmaker that touched people with these faith-based films.
1: And that is... I think a great place to put down the landing gear and land the plane. Warwick talks all the time, Mm -hmm. uh, Robert. He talks all the time about what do you want in your tombstone. And one of the things that we discovered as we were talking about that concept is if you look at the three greatest singers in three genres, country, Johnny Cash, rock and roll, Elvis Presley, standards, you know, jazz singer, Frank Sinatra, I looked up all of their headstones. Their headstones don't talk about all the gold records and all the concerts and all the fans. Johnny Cash has a psalm on his. Frank Sinatra simply says the best is yet to come. And Elvis Presley talks about being a son and a father. At the end of the day, those are the things that matter. And hopefully, listener, you have uh, really, in our time together today, uh, heard about some things that matter. And it's Warwick's hope and it's Robert's hope that Out of this conversation that we've had today, out of Robert being so transparent and Warwick talking about his own crucible experiences, that you draw hope from that. You draw perhaps insight, ideas for how you too can live a life of significance beyond your crucible moment. And if you'd like to learn more about crucible leadership, you can visit us on our website at crucibleleadership.com. If you want to engage us on social media you can go to Facebook, and that's found at Facebook slash Crucible Leadership. If you'd like to engage with Warwick and Crucible Leadership on LinkedIn, that's at Warwick Fairfax. That is with the silent W in the middle, W-A-R-W-I-C-K Fairfax on LinkedIn. Until next time, when we talk about how to live and lead with significance remember that your crucible moments, as Robert has described today, your crucible moments are not the end of your story. They are the beginning. They can be the beginning of a story, a new chapter in your story that leads to the best destination possible, a life of significance.